you had been mentioned as a possible candidate for governor. Other things, uh, as while you were in Congress, uh, as you were leaving Congress, why this office and why now? Well, first off, I think it's the most important office that nobody thinks about or knows anything about until something, until you need something real bad, you want to get it through that office. It's an important office. And I think there's a need and an opportunity. The need is we're having to choose a new one. For the first time in 12 years, the voters are going to choose our Secretary of State in the first instance. This is an open seat. We haven't had one since 2006. I also think there's a, a real opportunity to be of service here. This is a, a job that's important to all of us at some times and to some of us all of the time. It's an important office to 700,000 people who depend on this office for the license they've got to hang on their wall in order to do their uh, their their trade or their profession. Well, we got a note from the guy who has the job now, Brian Kemp from here in Athens, out there running for Secretary of State. If you're one of those tens of thousands of people, the deadline is next month to, to get those license renewal applications in. Good, good PSA. Uh, <laughs> 700,000 people happens to be uh, roughly uh, equivalent to the number of people that I got to represent mm -hmm. on a constituent service basis as their member of Congress in not one but three different versions of uh, the 12th Congressional District that covered the eastern half and southern halves of the state. So I have a lot of experience in trying to help people deal with the bureaucracy, a much bigger bureaucracy than the state, I might add, for some 700,000 people in the past. And I think constituent services and a bipartisan approach toward the job are two of the unwritten job descriptions for this position that I think I meet um, better than anybody else I know. Circle back to those, but I want to start with where you were talking with those folks. I think it was down in Columbus. You mentioned it. You touched on it just now. The fact that basically the Republicans chased you across half the state. You were elected first as a member of Congress uh, from here in Athens. Uh, the district shifts uh, down to Savannah. You go down there, shifts up to Augusta. You go there. You win in all those places right up until the moment that the posse finally got you surrounded in the canyon there, and then, uh, <laughs> then you were you were voted out. Uh, you talk about a lot about that. You talk about gerrymandering and in ways around gerrymandering. My question for you would be, what does the Secretary of State have to say or do about it? That assuming that it exists and that it's a bad thing, it needs fixing, all of that, let's take all of those assumptions, what can the Secretary of State do? Well, the Secretary doesn't have any say-so as a matter of raw political power, but the Secretary of State does have a lot to say about it. And that's because the Secretary of State is the, is the officer who has to preside over the administration of these elections. And that means that the Secretary of State is going to be as in the past, a necessary party to any litigation challenging the administration of an election in an allegedly unconstitutional partisan gerrymander. So the Secretary of State has an unrivaled position to speak to the courts on the fairness of the current system. And who else can speak for the public better than the Secretary of State? when the Secretary of State's primary responsibility is to make sure that our elections are fair and that our votes are counted exactly the way they're cast. Why are we having all of these arguments and all of this concern and anxiety about whether or not our machines are accurately recording our votes, whether or not our votes can be kept secret and still be recorded exactly as they're cast, making sure that only eligible citizens are allowed to vote, making sure that there, no one's trying to game the system. Why are we having all of this discussion if 95% of the elections in this country are a virtual foregone conclusion, are a formality, a sham. That's what gerrymandering does to the political process. It is the number one way in which the vote is undermined in this country. No, I, I, and I more mean, and more people know about that now than ever before. I'd love to know what the potential fix would be here, because what you have at the end of the day is a 
process by which you draw political boundaries. You use politicians to do it, and they use the political process. How on earth do you take politics out of that? Well, first off, I don't think you're going to get reform from the politicians. The only places in the country where the process has been reformed by the adoption of some bipartisan or nonpartisan commission, for example, have been in states where the people actually have the power to legislate themselves through the power of the popular initiative or the referendum, like in Arizona and California. We're pretty much maxed out on the reform we can get through the extra political process. We're not going to get it through the ordinary political process because the folks who are running things benefit from the way things are, and they're not going to open up the process to put the, make them more vulnerable. Judicial reform is where it's going to have to come as it, as, it is, as it has come in so many other areas where the politics has been corrupted by ways in which the system has been gained, whether it's been by the county unit system or a whole bunch of other systems that have been used in the past in order to give some people more influence in the political process than others. You ask how it can be done. I think what the courts are ultimately going to do is they're going to say, look, we're not going to do the gerrymandering for the legislatures. We know that what the legislatures legislatures are doing is wrong, but we're not going to step in and do their job for them. We're not going to do judicial it's not, gerrymandering. It's not the role of the courts. It is not the role of the courts, and that's the thing that's held up the Supreme Court, which is grappling with some kind of idea for what to do as a, as a, as a remedy for this problem. The, the courts recognize this is a wrong that needs a remedy, but they haven't been able to settle on a remedy yet. I think the remedy that gets the courts off the hooks, that gets them to basically take the partisans on both sides and knock their heads together, is to, is to pass a rule that says something to the effect, look, we're not going to draw your lines for you, uh, but we are going to insist that the lines give the most number of voters the greatest say in the electoral process. And the only way to do that is to take this partisan divide that we've got and require that the partisans draw lines that m maximize the competition in the largest number of districts. Uh, if, if, you did that, if you did that, you would empower the people on both sides of the aisle in each district. You'd also empower independents who are largely locked out of the process. One of the this would give everybody the greatest do. say over the outcome. One of the things that could happen, it won't, but it could, it seems to me. And, and if we were to ever do this, to ever get to this point, we wouldn't need committees. We wouldn't need politicians. We would need, I don't know, high school freshmen with decent software could draw districts that had more or less the same number of people in them if we could ever get past having to deal with pigmentation. If we could take race out of this, I, I don't know that's a bigger question than either one of us, but I mean, isn't that ultimately what could fix all of this? Well, I don't think that is the sole driver of gerrymandering. It is a peculiar feature of the of the, um, of the remedial legislation that was passed in the 60s to deal with a problem of racial discrimination in this country. And you can't say that problem's exactly gone away. But the approach that I'm taking is one that would empower groups of uh, voters in almost any district, whether or not they themselves were in the majority in, in, or not. If, if you had genuinely competitive districts, either side would have an incentive to nominate somebody who would campaign toward the middle, who would have uh, who would appeal uh, to the moderate centrist voters. Which, by the way, where John Barrow was for most of his time in Congress and, and for his trouble had Republicans chase him out of Congress. John well, Barrow. Well, that's what we need. <laughs> I'm tempted to ask which you missed the most, being behind the rail or being up there on Capitol Hill. Oh, I don't mind. Um, I don't miss being on Capitol Hill. They could cram more time and less work than any other place I've ever been in my life. I, I miss uh, the time being on the commission more because we actually are able to 
do more, and I think we learn more lessons of bipartisanship with the intimate uh, kind of representative representation you get from a small body that represents a diverse community. By the way, what a time to be behind the rail. I mean, it was right after unification and all those fights. Oh, that was a, that's a lesson that's that's not lost on me, and I advise everybody who's thinking about going through this process, just, just realize you're going to go through a transition period that's going to be unlike anything that the ballyhooers told you to expect out of consolidation, because you've got to refight every single political battle that's been fought to one conclusion or another by either form of government. For a half century, mm. you gotta you gotta readopt everything, and that's gonna that's gonna bring a lot of things out. There's gonna be a lot of uh, struggle, but we got through it. Uh, it was a, it was a tough time. I'm proud of the fact that some of the folks who got through, who entered in the first class uh, came through and got got reelected. I was uh, I was a part of that team, and that showed the folks understood we were trying our best in very, in very trying circumstances. Mm-hmm. All right. uh, running now for Secretary of State, uh, to, to be the Secretary of State or to talk about being the Secretary of State, you have to have some idea of what to do with and about the voting machines. Here's what I think we know. We know whether you like them or don't, the ones we've been using for about 15 years now, the better part of a decade and a half, uh, we can't keep using. They're, they're aging themselves out of uh, out of viability here. we got to come up with something. It's that something that seems to be tripping up folks. Uh, what would Secretary of State John Barrow advocate? First off, I think the answer has been pretty clear for some time now. 75% of the people in this country are using new and improved forms of paper ballots that are marked by the voters, uh, either with the the use of a machine, a very high-priced, expensive um, uh, ballot marking machine, uh, or they're doing it by hand, and they're um, depositing these into scanners, which help uh, catch any errors or mistakes that are made and that would show up in the counting of the ballots, such as overvoting or under or, or undervoting, missing a vote, and that deposits the um, the ballot into a box where the ballot can be counted later on and recounted if necessary. Uh, the so-called backup, the paper backup, more than the a paper backup, trail, more than a backup. It's the the primary form. So of that's what b- you want to do. Re- okay, again, a couple of things we could do here: stay with the electronic machines, go back to the paper machines, or the electronic machines with the paper trail backup. You're advocating paper machines. I'm advocating uh, paper uh, ballots marked by the voters optical scanners to provide a, a quick but unofficial count of the of the day's total and the total from the from the days in early voting and uh, post uh, balloting auditing to make sure the scanners are haven't been messed with in some way or another because you don't want to rely uh, on, on an unofficial account uh, for so long that you don't realize that that, that technological vulnerability can be breached. Look, we've entered into an age where the machines we're using, uh, the, 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 the offense is stronger than the defense. These machines have not been supported by the, by the software companies that have provided the software for them for years. They haven't been certified by the Secretary of State since 2008. Mm-hmm. Uh, the law, they plainly fail to meet the statutory criteria of reliability. This is not my standard or what I think it ought to be, but the statutory standard of reliability. Under these circumstances, it's the responsibility of the Secretary of State to convene a process for decertifying these machines and requiring that we use the process that's currently authorized by law as the only other alternate backup system, and that's paper ballots with optical scanners. That is authorized by the law now. We use that now for provisional ballot counting, for absentee ballot counting, and we have the the wherewithal to do that for all 
early voting and in-person voting and election day voting as well. But the challenge you'll find if you become Secretary of State is, as I understand it, that that Secretary of State's office has a budget of about a dollar and a half. I mean, you can't go out and allocate and buy the machines. The legislature has to do that, and there's going to be a lot of local buy-in there as well and, and local expenditures there as well. How do we fund these things? Well, the legislature is going to have to recognize that this has got to be done. The Secretary of State can help them do that because the Secretary of State has been given the authority and the responsibility by the legislature to decide when this has to be done. The legislature does have the purse strings, but the legislature has already given the Secretary of State the power and responsibility under the law to certify these machines when they meet the, stand the standard of reliability and to decertify these machines when they no longer meet the statutory standard of reliability. We got a statute on the books. We have an authority already vested in the Secretary of State, and I've already called upon the Secretary of State to exercise that authority and decertify these machines now and go forward with paper ballots. We will be doing, we'll having this discussion next year. I think that uh, when we get together and the legislature recognizes its responsibility, uh, finally, at long last, uh, to provide the extra number of optical scanners that will make it possible for us to get a quick read on election night, and that the authority we already have to use paper ballots is the best way forward, that's what we're gonna, probably going to end up doing. Uh, are, you, are we, I should say, are being somewhat guilty of being maybe nostalgic for a time that never existed? We have this notion in our minds, I think, that one time back in the day was this day when we had this election thing nailed, and now we've gotten over our skis with all these electronic voting machines, and the Russians are hacking us left and right. Listen, this is a state, and you're enough of an historian to know, this is a state that managed to elect three governors at the same time, all from the same party. <laughs> this is a state where people literally rose from the grave and voted in alphabetical order. We've never had that perfect pristine election. Do we think we're ever going to? I don't think you have to insist on perfection in any human institution to be committed to making it as perfect as it can be, to make it as accurate and reliable as it can be. Clearly, this is a cost-benefit analysis process, mm -hmm. but I would not support anything that would make it easy for folks to vote if it also made it easy for some folks to cheat. There's also the concern that the problem really isn't on election day with the voting machines. It's the things that lead up to voter registration, for example, absentee balloting. You mentioned earlier, people tell me that's where the potential for real trouble is. Well, there are lots of vulnerabilities in the system, and on election day there are vulnerabilities that have nothing to do with actually getting into the machines and tampering with the results as cast by the voters who get to vote. There's all kinds of other tampering and, and, and mischief that can happen if you start messing around with the uh, voter, uh, the election officials record of who has voted and who hasn't voted. This is stuff that is widely disseminated over the internet and can be intercepted and tampered with in transit. Unlike the recording of the ballots on the machines, which can only be tampered with at close order if you actually upload something into a machine physically in front of you, uh, messing with the e-poll books is something that can cause a tremendous amount of disruption on election day without in any way having to get through the, uh, the firewall we've established between the, the, the electronic medium in the machines and the votes actually cast by the voters when they're punching something on a screen and it's showing up somewhere on a card. Look, we got, we got I think, deserve some credit in this state for having addressed the problems in the state of Florida in the 2000 election before anybody else did. Kathy Cox, Secretary of State at they the time. Did, they did a great job, and I think the I think it's fair to say that the, in, the technology in those days was such that the defense was stronger than the offense for someone wanting to mess with the system. 
But we have learned and come to realize that the power of offense is much greater today. The power of the pick locks is much greater than these antique locks we've got on these machines. And we've got to upgrade and revise our tech, our system. I think we ought to go to school on the rest of the country, just as the rest of the country had has gone to school on us from those early days in 2002 and on. It's time for us to adopt the best standards and best practices. And the geekiest people out there, the most technologically astute people out there will tell you, based on what we know about technology, we wouldn't rely on anything other than paper and pencil or pen to record our ballots. Because that's quickly, the only way in which you can't, you know you, the result has been counted the way you've cast it. Those geeks are over at Georgia Tech, by the way. Less than a minute left here. You mentioned, uh, back to the gerrymandering quickly, John Barrow, uh, just a few seconds here. Washington Post op-ed piece from a few days ago. Well, back in October, okay. uh, I, I, I was privileged to publish a, a piece that set forth my views on how I think the courts can solve this problem without substituting themselves for the gerrymanders. You know, the courts don't want to get into the business of allocating seats to either side Nor on they. the basis of some formula because they can't agree on what the formula is. <laughs> I think the formula that serves America best and the only one that keeps the courts from doing the same thing that the legislators are doing is to require maximum competition in as many districts as possible. Google that piece in the post. Look for him on it. Where's your website quickly? Uh, BarrowForGeorgia.com. BarrowForGeorgia.com.